Thanks, Natalie. If you want to pull out your outlines, some space there for you to take some notes today as we think on this last question of why is Jesus so special? Why is Jesus so special? Let's pray together as we seek to understand what God has said to us in His Word. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we come having heard You speak in Your Word, having heard what's happened in history and the way Jesus acted and the responses that came to Him. We ask that by Your Spirit, You'd help us to see Jesus as You do, as He is, and that we'd walk away from today having heard you shape and mold us in the likeness of your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All across the world, there are people who, no matter what you think of them, universally provoke a response. You just have to say the name Trump. And that, yeah, that's what happens. People, some people love the guy. They think he's the best thing that could happen for their country ever. And they're so sad that the man's leaving. A whole nation is divided. But the the other half of the nation are saying, this guy's a shocker. We want nothing to do with him. It's such division caused by who he is and what he's done. But it's not just him. People like Michael Jackson, right? One of, arguably, the best musicians to walk the planet ever. Amazing. Others think he's weird, Just strange. Others have this response. He's done some criminal stuff. There's some things that he's done that are really bad. And there's this divided opinion about whether we can celebrate him or his music or not. When it comes to people who provoke a reaction in society, I want to put it to you today that Jesus of Nazareth is the top of the list. He's the top of the list. Everywhere Jesus went, people couldn't help but to respond. They either loved him and thought he was God or wanted to kill him and wanted him dead. And it's still the same today. You mention Jesus at a party. What happens? Oh, that's a bit awkward. Or, oh, I love Jesus too. And you hear these different responses come from who he is. Some people hate him. Some people think he's a moral teacher. Other people think he's their savior. Some people use his name as an expletive. Others, they treat his name as the name above all names. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever heard anyone swear using any other religious figure? Or for that matter, any other name? Anyone hits their thumb with a hammer and goes, oh, Bruce. Like, who, who says that? Has anyone ever heard anyone do that? Or what about, oh, Buddha or Allah? You don't hear that said. Oh, Joseph Smith. You know, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> but the name Jesus Christ is used so often. Why is that? Why is Jesus so special? Why does he provoke such a response amongst us? As we get to this part of the Gospel of Mark, Mark is showing us who Jesus is. And he's going to show us why he is so special as we look at five responses to Jesus. And they're five different reactions. The first response we get is, at the start of the passage, these crowds. No matter what you think of Jesus, history reports that crowds flocked to him. Big crowds. Uh, when you can't count the number of people that are in a crowd, do you know how you, you describe them? From the nationalities that they're from. <laughs> uh, look at verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed him from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, from Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Like, this is huge. It'd be like saying people came from as far north as Dargaville and Kaitaia, as south as Hamilton and Tauranga, and across the, the Gulf from the Coromandel Peninsula. They came 
to follow Jesus, to see who this Jesus was, to find out more about Jesus. This is like a 200-kilometer area as the crow flies. They didn't have cars. No way to get there kind of quickly. We'll just jump in the motorway and zip on around. They walked or kind of came on, on donkeys if they were super rich. And they've come to this man, Jesus. It's a huge crowd. You want, I want you to imagine it for a moment. The people are kind of throbbing in, coming together, literally worried about crushing Jesus because they want to get close. You know, think Rugby World Cup final or Adele concert. Um, David Bowie in 1983. Was anyone there? On a show of hands. David Bowie, 1983. Oh, apparently the biggest concert that's ever happened in New Zealand. Uh, about 80,000 people gathered together to hear David Bowie. There we go. Tens of thousands of people have come to, to Jesus. It's so big that Jesus tells his disciples to get the getaway boat ready. He's on the side of the Lake of Galilee. He's like, get the boat. We're going to need to get out of here before I get crushed at some point. I've got to ask, is this how you view Jesus? As, as someone that people flocked to when he walked the earth. See, so often our picture of Jesus is so small. We believe the lie that he's a nobody, that he's just an optional extra on the side, that he isn't really that much in, in, in the big sweep of things. That's not how history records Jesus. Both Christian and, and, and secular accounts both record him as being highly influential. What was the attraction? Why? Why were people there? Well, Mark tells us in verse 8. Have a look. The large crowd came to Jesus... Because they had heard about everything he was doing. In verse 10, since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. People wanted to be well. They wanted their diseases to be fixed. The sick, the lame, the diseased, people with children there, brothers and sisters that they cared for. They just want to get them to Jesus. We've just seen the lengths that the, the friends of the paralytic went to in Mark chapter 2 to open up a roof of someone's house and lower him down so they could get him to Jesus. Now, people from all around the region have come. And they all want something from Jesus. Their view of Jesus is really the view that Jesus will make my life better. It's kind of like a genie in a bottle. You know, when you're stuck in a situation, you pull out your genie bottle and you rub it and out pops your genie and you get your three wishes. They're trying to get to Jesus to get their three healings. What's interesting is that so many people still approach Jesus that way today. They come to Jesus and they say, come, come to Jesus looking for him to make your life better, to solve your problems, to help you through a tough time. We can so often use Jesus as a crutch to get through life when we're limping. I need a bit of help. There's something kind of wrong and I need that to be fixed. I, I want to be able to feel better. And then when we get through that stage in life, we put Jesus away in the cupboard like that crutch that we used to use. We store it maybe there until the next time that we need some help, but otherwise I'm fine, thanks. It's funny, you know, sometimes we treat Jesus' word, the Bible, the same way. You know, a book of pick-me-ups. When I'm really down in the dumps, that's when I'll go to God's word. That's when I'll open up the scriptures. I'll look for some sayings that make me feel better, that give me some sort of hope to get through life, rather than recognizing that God's word is living and active. It's an extension of his relationship with us. Now, Jesus hasn't come as a pop king or queen. He's not come for the fame and glory. So he gets in this boat and literally distances himself from becoming people's genie in a bottle. He won't have it. He, he removes himself. 
That genie in a bottle view of Jesus, he's come to heal, he's come to make life better. It will always draw large crowds. It still does today. Come to Jesus and he'll heal you. Come to Jesus, he'll make your life so much better, so much more fruitful, so much more blessed. Of course people come because they buy the lie that Jesus is here just for my betterment. It always draws big crowds. But that's not who Jesus is. And it's not what he's come to do either. To come to Jesus to make your life a little bit better, it's to miss the mark on who he is. It's a totally distorted view of why he is so special. As a side note, the temptation for fame and glory in Christianity, in churches, to be the socially popular church, to be the church that society praises, or the church where amazing miracles happen, totally diverts the mission of God. It produces this self-centered version of Christianity that really is no Christianity at all. But the cult of personality and fabricated feeling. Jesus has not come to make you and me a bit better. He's come because we need a doctor. Because we've turned our back on him. And we need forgiveness. Well, the second reaction we see as Mark lays out these reactions to Jesus, as he shows us the way people responded to him, is from the demons. And we heard it in the kids' talk this morning. Look at verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. As we get to this bit, we see the Bible claim that the devil exists. That a realm, a spiritual realm beyond the physical really exists. One of Satan's greatest victories is to make us think that all that exists is what we can see and touch and feel. And there's nothing else other than that. But that's not true. There is far more going on in this world. And what we see here is that Satan is real. He's not a guy with pointy horns, like we kind of think, or, or you know, the evil force of the dark side. That's not him. But he is a creation of God's. God made him. He's spiritual, not bodily in nature. And demons, those that follow Satan, are those kind of like angels, except they've rebelled against God. What we see is he's not as powerful as God. He's been defeated by Jesus' death and resurrection. And so far throughout the book of Mark, we see Jesus in authority over the whole evil realm. The disciples would comment later on in the book of Mark that even demons submit to him and submit in his name. The key information in this part of the passage is that these unclean spirits, these satanic beings, those who have rebelled against God... They know who Jesus is. And they want to publicize it. They want to tell everyone. Why, why do they want to tell people? Because they want to control him. They want to control Jesus. It's not the plan and timing of God for the world to know in, in, in completeness of who Jesus is, that he is God the Son. You see, when you know someone's name, they're far easier to control. I don't know if you've ever seen that with kids. You're outside and you see come some kid doing something and you're like, hey, kids, stop that. They're like, whatever. <laughs> but I know when I was a kid, when that adult said, Rowan, stop it. I was like, whoa, they know my name. Ah! Means they know my parents. I'm going to get in trouble. Right? And that was often what happened. When someone knows your name, you're like, oh, it doesn't really matter. If I was to call out you right now, you're like, ah, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Here it is. 
And what they're trying to do is, these evil spirits are saying, we know who you are, you're the son of God, and we're going to let the world know that early. They're trying to control Jesus. And you see it today with people who want to control him, want to to say things about him, recognize who he is, but kind of shape it in their own way. Yes, yes, he's the son of God, Jesus, but he didn't come to forgive This whole idea of sin and the afterlife, that's just a thing that mankind has added on. He was God the Son who came as a great moral leader. That's what he is. Definitely was God the Son, but as a great moral leader. You know, he was a good example. And really what you need to do is just follow his example and be loving and kind to the world around you. There's no way he actually meant he was the only way to God. No, he wouldn't have meant that at all. He was God the Son and he's come into the earth and mankind has changed it. Have you heard these arguments? People like these satanic beings wanting to shape the way the world views Jesus. To kind of dumb him down. People who claim they have a higher intelligence, I know who he is, then reframe why he's here and distort the truth on his mission. That might even be you today. That you have these... Views, you've read the kind of evidence that exists, but you're like, no, he's not like that. He's more like this. And you have a a different view, a kind of domesticated view, and a view that doesn't change the way you live. And you're happy to say he might be God, but uh, we can't know much more. But these evil spirits, they know who he is, but they want to live for someone else. They want to remain in opposition to him, want to control him, and they're refusing to be controlled by him. And you see this too with people who understand the claims of Jesus, but reframe what it means. It really really does make me angry when people do that today, and especially when churches do that today. Churches who claim they speak for God and put forward a different Jesus than history shows us. Let me read you an excerpt. I could have gone from many churches, but an Anglican church here in Auckland. I'll pick on Anglicans because that was my heritage. I grew up as an Anglican. I worked in an Anglican church. I was ordained as an Anglican minister. So I'll pick on my own kind of background. This is what it says, and it's on the screen. Progressive Christians take all three authorities, scripture, church teaching and tradition, and reason, seriously, but make none of them supreme. Progressives are more interested in spirituality than right belief or proper worship. The identity of progressive Christians is centered in ethical living. What's that saying? Well, Reason and logic are just as important as what Scripture says and just as important as what has happened throughout church history. And so we can choose what we want to do. And really, having the right belief isn't really what we're about. It doesn't matter what you think. It's as long as you live an ethical way, as long as you are good people. It's literally pushing us back to a moralistic message of Jesus. If you're a good person, then that's sweet. It ends people up in religious slavery. Saying we need to be good enough for God and then you'll be, you'll, be, you'll be saved. If that wasn't enough proof, look at this sentence. We recognize the faithfulness of other people who have other names for the way to God's realm and acknowledge that their ways are true for them as our ways are true for us. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They're saying, I know who you are, Jesus. You're the son of God. But, you know, we don't need to go to God that way. They're trying to reframe him, trying to control him. The apostle Peter tried to do this with Jesus a little later in Mark. 
Jesus says he's come to die and rise again. And Peter says, no, I know you're the Messiah. He says that. You're the promised king of God. But you won't die. You, know, you made me, but now let me tell you the best way to go forward. And you know what Jesus' response is to, Jesus? Jesus response is to Peter at that point? Get behind me, Satan. It's no surprise that the evil one is trying to reframe who Jesus is right from the start of the account of Jesus' life. It's no surprise he's still trying to do it today. And he's still trying to do it from places that proclaim to be Christian. Those thoughts might be sleeping, uh, sweeping into your way of looking at Jesus. You just want to make him look a little bit better. You want to not control him, but just do a bit more PR help for him. To make him look a little bit nicer to the world around us. We might want to kind of... Just move the things that are outdated that he says. Things on gender and sexuality and human sinfulness. We don't need to, to hear those. We just want to put a bit more of a positive spin on Jesus. I mean, he'd be pretty happy with me making him look better than he is. I mean, I'd be doing him a service, wouldn't I? We may know who he is, but we must not try to control him. We must let God be God. Not try and put him in a box. Try and think about, oh, well, I'd do it this way if I were God. As we come to him, we see he is God and he's the one who ought to control us and control the way we live in the world and set the bounds for what is right and what is wrong. Not us, not his creation, but the creator. Well, the third group we meet that have a response to Jesus are the experts. They're the experts. They're the big guns from Jerusalem. And they've come up as the theologians with a capital T and underlined. They're the ones with kind of all, they've been to the, all the best schools. You know, it's like Cambridge, Harvard, MIT, Oxford and Auckland University all in one. <laughs> right? World-class education. The stuff true leaders are made of. They've come up through the religious sects. They've, they've known the scriptures. They can recite them all. They've got it all sorted. And, and they were the, the people that were the kind of religious strongmen. They knew what was right and what was wrong. And they've come to check out Jesus, to see if he's lining up with what should have been said. And if these guys were around today, there'd be the people who had more letters after their name than in their name. You know, so many degrees on the end. It's like PhD, MA, MPhil, summa cum laude, whatever university model, you know, just medal model. Could have been them both, you know. And they'd have so many stories of what they've done and their studies and they've come to say, look, we know what's right. We've studied, we've come, and we will sit over Jesus and test him. Look at verse 22. The scribes who'd come down from Jerusalem said, I mean, obviously they've heard of what's been going on. They've seen the people coming to him. Why are people coming out? Here's their answer. He's possessed by Beelzebul. He drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Typical academics, sorry if you are one. It just doesn't make sense. Some idea they want to rule out and say, this is brilliant. This is the way forward. Yes, this is it. He's driving out demons by the power of demons. Yes. And they sit back and stroke their long goatees. In other words, don't doubt Jesus' power, but doubt his source. Make Jesus out to be the bad guy. Not only is Jesus theologically unsound, but he's possessed by a demon. Satan's gotten into him. That's how he's able to do stuff. They're kind of tricking. It's like, oh, you got me. Okay, I'll come out. <laughs> Good one, Jesus. It's that type of idea. Jesus is getting rid of demons by being possessed by demons. And so Jesus just speaks truth. He speaks in terms of a parable straight back to them. And he shows the best minds in Israel 
that their logic is ludicrous. Look at verse 23. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. It's kind of like, well, it's all over. It's done. If Satan's against himself, what an idiot. He's just taking himself out. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. In other words, but I can come and throw Satan out because I'm stronger than him. I can come and get him and remove him from these places because I am the one who is in control. You see here Jesus' authority in the way he comes back. And he's so strong that the one standing before them is the one who has control over even the evil spirits, even over Satan. You know, Martin Luther in church history, whenever he writes of Satan, he doesn't call him Satan. He calls him God Satan, just as a reminder of who is more powerful. He references him as a Rottweiler on a leash, that God says, yes, he's a Rottweiler, he's strong, he can do horrible things, but only so far as I allow him. You say that in the book of Job. Yes, you can do this, but only this far. And he goes to the end of a leash. God's Satan. And what we see here is that Jesus is in control over even Satan himself. Satan's power is being restrained. Jesus is getting ready to plunder Satan's house. What is the end point of what Satan is trying to do? He's trying to reduce people to dust. That's what he did in the garden. When he got Adam and Eve to rebel against God, from dust you come and from dust you shall return. Satan saw them reject God's goodness and trust in themselves and so death entered the world. Jesus is readying himself to reach into death itself and come back from the grave showing that he has won. And what he's doing now is just short little signs pointing people to the reality that he is in control. The punchline for us here is just because some academic says it, just because you might have a PhD or, or consider yourself to have higher logic, doesn't necessarily mean you recognize what's going on. I'd rather have one person who has read and known God's word than 15 who knew the latest scholarship views from academia on how we think about a feministic view of the Gospels or all sorts of different things that get thrown forward. Richard Dawkins, the well-known atheistic professor of Oxford University, he claims this, and I'll give you his claim, it's on the screen. It's even possible to mount a serious, though not widely supported, historical case that Jesus never lived at all. As has been done by, among others, Professor G.A. Wells of the University of London, in a number of books, including Did Jesus Exist? Although Jesus probably existed. Now, that's in The God Delusion, you can read it, page 122. There is a professor, G.A. Wells, uh, who says that Jesus did not exist. Do you know what he's a professor of? German. I kid you not. He's not a professor of ancient history. He's got no study in ancient history at all. But he wrote this book saying Jesus probably doesn't exist. And here, Dawkins claims he's someone who's a professor. He doesn't think Jesus existed, but he's a professor of German. Like, so he can read some German theologians. That might be helpful. There's some good ones. He could read them and actually understand what's going on. He's commenting totally outside of his field. What does that tell us? Do not trust someone merely because of the letters after their name. Merely because they come from the right theological college. 
merely because they've, they've said good things before or they say some things that seem to make sense. Test it against what God says. But what's even more disastrous is these religious leaders' profession that what Jesus is doing is ultimately evil. And in fact, he's doing it from Satan. They're rejecting Jesus himself. And we'll see in a moment the outcome of that. The next reaction we see, the next group of people we come across, is Jesus' family. And you get to family and you think, you know, generally family is, there's such a goodness to family. There's something like, oh, maybe finally his family will see him as he is. But that's not what goes on at all. The family see Jesus making a spectacle of himself. And they want to save him from the shame, uh, the shame themselves. And you can understand that, can't you? They, they, don't, they don't want a family member who's known as this wacko going around that the religious academia are saying, no, this is not true. And the nations are flocking toward, but then just leaving him dumped on the side. What they miss is the phenomenal impact of Jesus. They see him as the brother, the son. But they miss him as the center of history. They miss what was spoken to Mary at the, at the beginning of the Gospels, that this is someone special. Because they're afraid of what others think. I mean, surely Jesus' mother would have remembered it was a virgin birth. God spoke, there were angels. When he was born, the sky lit up, Luke tells us, with angels in the sky singing glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. The Savior is born. You'd remember that. That's not one of those things you'd be like, oh, there's something that happened when he was born. You know, I was a bit tired from the birth. The sky lit up with angels. They were there singing like, whoa. Why would they now do this flip? Why would they be saying, yeah, Jesus, shh, come aside. We'll put you in the back cupboard with that weird uncle. You know, you can stay there and just, just hang out. Because of shame. They pull back because they're afraid of what others will think of them. How often do we pull back on really following Jesus, on really responding to him like we know we ought because we're ashamed of how people will view us? A couple of years ago, I came across a post on a secular forum that was non-Christians talking about how New Zealand had such low numbers of Christians. So non-Christians, people who don't trust Jesus, were having these discussions. I'll put them on the screen for you. In my daily routine, I never encounter a religious person. In fact, I only know one person who admits there is a God, and she is more a deist and doesn't attend church anymore. Even my great uncle, who used to be a minister now, is an open atheist. Here's another one. I'm a Kiwi, and I don't know any Christians. I think uh, the Christians here tend to be less in your face about their faith. The topic rarely arises in conversation. I've been friends with one girl for over five years, and we're quite close. Um, last week, she was in a car accident. And in one of her texts, she included the sentence, please pray for me. That was the first time she'd mentioned religion in our entire friendship. Some people, they think Jesus is crazy and are embarrassed by him. We don't like the reaction he provokes in others, so we censor him from our speech and from our life. We trust him, but it doesn't come out. These are non-Christians going, yeah, it seems like the Christians just aren't here. It's exactly what Jesus' family were trying to do. Those who should have been the closest to him wanted to move him the furthest away from people. This is his family. I'm going to ask you today, are you ashamed of Jesus? Is your response to him and your denial of him because you're ashamed of what people will think of you? 
Are you holding back? Are you censoring your speech of your king? Because you're worried about what others will think. Well, the final group, uh, the most important group. And I put them last in this talk because in Western culture, you put the most important one last. But actually, in the Middle East, you put the most important thing in the middle. Uh, It's kind of like a sandwich. And Mark does this often. You call them Markan sandwiches. Why is it like a sandwich? Well, no one ever has a bread sandwich, right? Has anyone ever had a bread sandwich? I've never seen a bread sandwich. But most sandwiches are mostly bread. No, you have like a ham sandwich because that's what's in the middle of the bread. You know, you have a chicken sandwich. It's in the middle. You have a BLT. It's the stuff that's in the middle that counts. So it is with this section of Mark. It's what's in the middle that's important. And right in the middle of this section, there's this weird bit about Jesus calling people to himself. And Jesus saying, come, and they obey. So the last group of people that respond to Jesus are those he calls. The stardom of the miracle healer is not what Jesus came for. And as the temptation to kind of be the person who's in the middle, the person who people are flocking to, in verse 13, Jesus retreats at the strategic point where if it were me, I'd be like, okay, all these people are coming to me. Now's the time. All right, everyone, I've got the sun. I've come to save the world. Repent, believe in me. I'm going to die. Trust me, let's go. And, and I would have gotten a bigger crowd, put it on Instagram, and there would have been TikTok videos. It would have been like brilliant everywhere. It would have been a, the sensation. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's not focused on his glory, but he's focused on God's plan, which would see him dying in our place. So in verse 13, we read that he retreats to a mountaintop at the point where he could have been famous. He jumps in a boat, gets lost, goes to the mountaintop, seeking not the glory of man, but the kingdom he came to begin. Look at verse 13. Jesus went up the mountain, summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. No fanfare, no wrestle. He had to convince them for a while. He laid out his five-step plan, his, his vision for the next 10 years. He just went up the mountain, summoned those he wanted. You guys come follow me, and they did. There's 12 of them. 12 men. If you're a Bible reader... You're like, we've heard that number 12 before. And the Greek literally says, he, he calls himself, he makes 12 men. It's not he just calls them, he makes them. It's it, it a similar way to the way God speaks in the start of Genesis. And he, he calls creation into being and it happens. These 12 men he brings together. And that should remind us, if we're a Bible reader, of the 12 tribes of Israel, that the people of God. What is happening in this, this response to Jesus and the reaction the world is having and the crowds are coming Jesus is saying, I will create my people and I will do it with 12 men and I will appoint them to be sent out and preach and to have authority. What Jesus is doing in the middle of this passage, what Mark is showing us is the reason Jesus is so special is because he's coming to make a new people of God, a new Israel. It's now centered around him. If you want to be part of God's people, if you want to know God, if you want to be in right relationship with God, you've got to come to Jesus. You've got to listen to the call of Jesus. In verse 31, his mothers and brother come back again. Mark tells us there's another bit. It's like the other end of the sandwich. And they're standing outside and they sent word to Jesus and called him. 
In verse 32, it says, A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother and brothers and your sister are outside asking for you. In other words, listen to your family, Jesus. Come on, if you just, just move on, move on. We've got the crowd to the family, those furthest away from him to those who should be closest, all saying, give it up, Jesus. The crowd don't care who he is. They just want what he can do for them. The religious leaders think he's a liar and does it from Satan's power. His family think he's loopy. Everyone just wants to go and listen to his mother. Give up and go home. Like, that's embarrassing, right? When your own mother gives up on you, the one who birthed you and loved you thinks that you've lost it, you know you've hit rock bottom. But look at Jesus' response at the end. Verse 33. He replied to them, Who are my mother and brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Friends, here is the key to recognizing why Jesus is so special. There are a myriad of ways to respond to Jesus that so many people do. There are his groupies that like, want to treat him like a genie in a bottle and make life better. There are those who recognize who he is but want to live for someone else and so reframe him to fit in with their view of the world. There are those that make him out to be the bad guy, fit him in our own box, lock him in the cupboard as some weirdo or get some seemingly intelligent expert to write off his claim. But ultimately, the only right response to this man is to do the will of God and sit at his feet. That's what Mark is saying. When you recognize who he is, what I've just shown you in Mark so far to this point, that he is God the Son. Do you remember what happened? Jesus steps onto the earth, he gets baptized, and then this voice is heard. Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by, in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The religious people say Jesus is from Satan. God says he is my son. That's what's so special about Jesus. He is God the son. He's the one who made heaven and earth. He's the one that came to not lead by being popular and by giving people everything we think we need, but by giving us what we truly need, forgiveness. Fixing our relationship with God. Listen to the Apostle Paul who got who Jesus was. He was once this propeller-head academic. And now he gets who Jesus is. Colossians 1.16, he says this. For everything was created by Jesus in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. In other words, those demons, he made them. Get out. Those, th- those people who thought they knew better and they were like saying, ah, oh, we want to get rid of you, we want to kill you. He was in control of it all. The whole time, he was the God who made the universe, yet he let his creation nail him to a cross. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is going to keep telling us, and we're going to look at the rest of the book of Mark, study next week. We're going to work through chapter by chapter all the way to the end uh, for the next couple of months, seeing this story unfold in its fast-paced manner. Recognize who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and how we respond. Throughout the book of Mark, Jesus will keep telling us that he's come to forgive our sins. 
He just pointed that out a couple of weeks ago in Mark chapter 2 with the paralytic through the roof. Son, your sins are forgiven. He has authority to deal with our relationship with God because he is the God we've rebelled against. We saw last week that Jesus is amazing. That he's come and stepped into the world to save the sick, to save sinners like us. And that no one is too far gone for God. But this week we see how you respond to him matters. And hear this very clearly. Because there's one thing he can't forgive. It's what Jesus says of the Pharisees in this chapter, what he calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's when these Pharisees say, oh, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. In other words, you're satanic. You're not God, you're satanic. When you reject what God the Spirit says about Jesus, when you say that he isn't God, that's unforgivable. See, so long as you think Jesus isn't God, you can't be forgiven by him because God and God alone can forgive sin. If you reject the only way of forgiveness, Jesus, then you reject any possibility of forgiveness itself. The Spirit of God, the Old Testament, the testimony of God's voice at Jesus' baptism, the testimony of those who knew him, they all said Jesus was certainly special. He was certainly the Son of God. But if you reject that claim, if you say, no, I think he's someone different. I want to reframe him. I'm ashamed of him. I want to push him aside then there's no forgiveness. And our future is judgment from God. But if he really is the Lord, then the right response is to listen to him, to sit at his feet as those who are around him and be part of this new people of God, those he's calling to himself to trust him as God the Son, who's offered you and me forgiveness and to put our lives and our view of the world, of what is right and wrong, all in his hands. Not in order to make life a bit better for us, but in order to know the maker of life itself. To recognize Jesus is the king. To know his love for us, that we can be forgiven. And to call him our brother and God our father. Jesus provokes what is probably the greatest difference of opinion of anyone in human history. And I want to put it to you this morning, that that's because he is the most important person In human history. He made it. He sustains it. And he is in control of it. The question for us is. The question that Mark is posing. To every single person here today is. How will you respond? Will you follow as he calls you to himself? Or will you say no I know better? Eternity is in your hands. Let's pray. Father God. As we look at the authority of Jesus. His power to have authority even over evil spirits, to to, to heal the sick, to have great understanding, but more than that, to be able to forgive our sin. We are so thankful that Jesus came and lived and died and that he rose again, showing that death has been defeated. We admit that so often we, we treat Jesus in a way that we ought not. We respond wrong. We either think that he's come to make our lives better and we think we, we can reframe him and he doesn't really, we don't take him on at, at his word. This morning we ask that you would help us to see Jesus as he really is and to respond by sitting at his feet, by hearing the forgiveness he's given us and by changing uh, to put him as the king of our lives. Please help us to do that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful, and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. 
So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.